Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 53, part 1. And indeed, there was no adequate vehicle or keyboard which Mr. Spitzer knew, no carriage to carry him from world to world, no piano keyboard of more than 10,000 keys reaching like surf through glittering sunlight or moonlight, or their fusion in the gray fog, none to give the range of his feelings which were enclosed as in a narrow room, yet breaking through the walls of this life, this cocoon existence, he sometimes thought, and ranging over the wide, illimitable reaches of space like the immortal ego. His character did not correspond to his experience, and he had found, though he had sought for it, no unity such as he had desired, no integration of these lost thematic segments and contrapuntal instincts wandering through a storm of years, the disrelated and disconnected years. It was as if, already in this temporal life expiring with each moment, he led his future existence, one already outside the realm where he was, one in that space where he would never be. So perhaps because of his brother's apparent suicide, he was already lost. This poor composer, this lost musician with his unfinished song. There were only these poor notes marked by many signos, many signs like his S, which concealed other signs. Sometimes they might begin softly, seeming only the faintest gropings, hoverings, the almost imperceptible perceptions of those whose entire life was passed in darkness, absolute darkness. No ray of light should penetrate or transform but they had been intended to reach. By gradual beginnings and exploratory movements and figurations of contrast, crescendos of unbelievable climax, Mr. Spitzer, having saved his trump card for his finales, as his brother might say, for that vast overture of finality which should be an iridescent picture of the darkened universe, all that was contained of human life, and something more than human life, the logical music which should be played in empty halls and not merely the pale wind moving through these scores, not merely an inarticulate sob, not merely the splash of some nocturnal waiting bird. People were indifferent to those things which interested Mr. Spitzer, rarely asking him now of the singing stars, the planetary, planetary orbs, concentric and eccentric spheres, the shaded avenues or harmonious arrangements, the things which had interested Mr. Spitzer in this restricted life. He might have enjoyed a conversation with some old master of the harpsichord, such as he did not meet, or if he should meet with a manufacturer of obsolete musical instruments, he would invest with him a fortune already lost, perhaps on the horses. Would they not become as obsolete some day, Mr. Spitzer wondered, as those old musical instruments like the shells which were worn down by the tide? But people were... But people were more likely to ask of the whistling uh, calliope music, deafening to Mr. Spitzer's ears, or who won the horse race, or who won on the dogs, or who won on the black rooster. People, not seeming to notice his silence, would try to engage him in conversations as to sudden windfalls, shifts of fortune, blows of chance, turnings and twistings of fate, spinnings of the old roulette wheels, which were starry wheels, each wheel stopping in a different number, as if each were a different life, or a different period or phase of the same life. So Mr. Spitzer, becoming impatient, must be continually on his guard, for he had achieved perhaps more than he had wished to achieve, and he was mistaken increasingly for his brother. How often had this gambler died, as Mr. Spitzer must sighingly inquire? How many lives had there been his to lose in his bettings on the odds, the odd horse, the odd number, the one chance in a million? Mr. Spitzer, though trying to be equable, could not help feeling himself somewhat eclipsed by these continuing inquiries, as if half his life were already in the shadow, perhaps had always been. People, though, were so insensitive, not seeming to notice his sensitivity, 
His attitude of cold withdrawal, that baffled look which swept across his face as if suddenly an angel had passed. They probably would not have understood Mr. Spitzer's swan song. They wanted tips as to the numbers racket, the old shell games in which the victim had no chance. As Mr. Spitzer remembered from a remark once made by his brother, no chance to win, for the odds were stacked against him from the beginning of time, so all his strategies were inept, and he was doomed to lose. He was thus literally astonished that he was even somewhat vaguely flattered, almost deceived, in fact, or lulled into a feeling of false security, in spite of his hidden irritation and sense of overwhelming loss, in spite of the great breach or rift created in his life by his brother's death, and in spite of the fact that there was no fixed star by these various persistent assumptions as to his present knowledge and activities, some of which were still doubtless quite shady and in the underworld, and if it had not, not been for his brother, would have been completely or almost completely unknown to him. As if he had somehow become, though he was respectable and wore his wilted white rose, his dead brother Perone, who had been quite a versatile actor in, his li in this life, and who had deceived his closest friends, and who had probably, Mr. Spitzer would assume, broken mo many ladies' hearts, or at least disappointed their impossible and romantic expectations, by suddenly saying he was Joaquin, who had been in no way involved in these trifling affairs, and who had been faithful all his life to one unanswering love, one unchanging image. And now... The situation, this infinite paradox, was reversed. For Joaquin must seem Perone, as life must seem death. Perone being no more himself, but being this pale replica, more like a mask than a man, more like a dream than flesh and blood and bone. Perhaps Perone, assuming so many personalities and leading his checkered career, had never been himself. And this pale replica was Mr. Spitzer with his moody face, his receding hairline, his domed forehead, his double chin which glistened always as if the evening dew had settled upon it, his dimples which came and went, the folds of his amorphous flesh, his blankly staring eyes, sometimes transparent as the light, sometimes enlarged, sometimes shrunken, his feeling that he lived in two worlds at once, though in neither world was he at home, and he was only his sad visitor. He stopped in each world as if it were only another deserted spa or abandoned watering place, one visited only by loud sobbing loons and turns passenger birds, for in each world he found that his beloved brother was dead. And yet what was the time in which he lived? Love knew no time, or through so many years had passed, yet they would collapse, seeming only like a minute or much less. Whole centuries might be a baby's cry in the darkness. A child was always wandering lost, crying in the night somewhere, crying through the deathless years. Sometimes, though, he was appalled by the idea. It would seem to Mr. Spitzer that other people were light, that he had missed his brother by only a minute. Sometimes, when walking through the streets of an abandoned city, an intangible as fog, in which all shapes melted or were distorted, Mr. Spitzer would hear or seem to hear, diminishing the distance beyond the traffic roar, the sounds of large, flapping, star-pointed footsteps upon the brainwashed, pearl-colored pavements, shining was from within, would find himself thinking that it was his brother who had gone before him, that he might have caught up with his brother if only Perone had not gone so quick, disappeared into the fog, if only Mr. Spitzer, always so slow and deliberate, had not lingered here a minute or longer, trying to make up his mind, trying to bring his conflicts to some kind of ultimate resolution, perhaps because of his own illusion seeming to be reflected everywhere, because of his own persistent image which lived on in the human mind and in the mind which was not human, Mr. Spitzer would think his brother lived, for he was his brother's image, and there was no individual but this reflection. Or maybe, Mr. Spitzer would sometimes think, 
just as he arrived, his brother had gone to another world, so they had missed each other by only a minute, though perhaps a minute through all eternity, as if his brother's train should pull out just as Mr. Spitzer's train pulled in, and he would always miss connections, as between his trains of memory, or it was the wrong station. Quite often, or so it seemed to him, his train would pass a station, a windy star, Mr. Spitzer would never see a train pass in the distance, its smoke curling like a plume over this earth, without feeling that he was the other passenger riding the other train, passing through the other landscape. Nothing made him so sad as the sound of a train's whistle. Had he been born alone and not as a mournful twin brother, he might have felt the same bewilderment, and always, whatever direction he took, that he should have gone in the other direction. Sometimes with his blank face pressed against a mystery train window, he would be surprised to see that the landscape which should have been so familiar to him was not familiar, that it was unknown to him, or almost utterly unknown, that though he was only going from Boston to Boston, as it were, and though the old ticket-taker had passed through for the last time and taken his ticket and seemed to recognize him as this familiar passenger, this commuter, he was crossing strange frontiers, that this was not New England as he knew it, that these were wild regions of purple mountains, the glare of the sun upon the eternal snow, Castles perched upon inaccessible peaks, sunless ravines and endless stairways, great stone birds perched upon great stone cliffs. So was he dead? And if other people wrapped in their own awesome or petty concerns did not always know which brother he was, how should he know, with absolute certainty, that he was Joachim, the silent musician who had not wished to live, to endure the, stir, the, to endure the certainty of failure? Even when other people were right, as if by accident, by the laws of probability, which must be in his favor sometimes, yet they were wrong, when they thought he was himself, the shadowed half of the moon or the shadowed hall of the earth. There was nothing fixed or stable, he would suppose, in the entire universe, nothing which was not subject to motion or change, beyond all vagaries and doubts which might contain a seed of truth. But there was no such unchanging point, of view, point he knew. For even the dead moon waxed and waned, and clouds passed over the face of the moon, or seemed to pass over the moon, its changing contours even as his own consciousness would change, sometimes without his knowing it, though he would ever be ever so watchful, on the alert, trying to catch that moment of subtle or violent change. For who should catch a moment on the wing, or stay the passage of time moving with a double movement? There would be always a fatal discrepancy between these alterations in his knowledge, a time lag, as he would say, a necessary retardation and torpor of slowing of his reactions, a slow and horrifying recognition of the fact that the greatest change of all had already occurred. He would pass into oblivion, and he would seem to be his brother, remote, beyond all reason, someone he scarcely knew, this poor substitute. Perhaps the idea had often occurred to him he might have changed places with another in his wakeful sleep, Perhaps the same set of grad graduated bells was always ringing in his memory, but ringing in a different order from that in which they had previously been struck. Changelessness, too, was a kind of change, as he had always timidly recognized, fearful of the slightest change in his daily routines, fearful of the unpredictable sea or the shillings of the wind or the flying sand like crystal. The wound was the creative thing. Even if one did not move, one changed, changed before one's eyes changed as the shadow moved, as the wind altered its course. He supposed that he had always been timid in all things, as in this immortal love, as in his mortal life, as in death, that he had been too timid a composer to write a music which could be heard, that he had been a timid chess player, afraid to move his black knight another square, 
like that madman who had waited all his life to make one move toward final victory because it would be his absolute final defeat, his death. Because having moved his man, he would never move again. So why move? Madness has also its reasons, quite sane from the point of view of the mad, perhaps even from the point of view of the sane. Life was this infinite variety of moves and counter-moves, accompanied, however, by infinite monotone, Mr. Spitzer, to his early sorrow, had found. A few repetitive notes, wandering flute notes coming from a cloud or from no known source, a wearisome sameness like his this poor brother he was, alone and groping through the dark, only approximating what his brother had been when he was alive. Yes, even now, after so many years, seeming like moments as one looked back on them, and dare one look at the weightless moments, weightless as the feathers of an angel drifting from a cloud. How gay and translucent and many-colored his brother's life had seemed and must continue to seem. Like a crazy patchwork of other people's lives, Mr. Spitzer had no doubt, having met so many of his brother's acquaintances, the mere remnants of themselves. For as prone, having no knowable convictions, it seemed so many transitory selves, it would be impossible, quite impossible to know, at this late date, which had been true. And this mystery had been heightened by the peculiar circumstance of its death, which had killed the song sparrow when he fell from the tall building. Tip-tilting as the sparrow fell, the purple skyscraper was scraped against the clouds, and had also killed, in a manner of speaking, this poor musician with his mourning cloak. Whereas Perone, in this life, had seemed transparent, all too transparent and unconfused. Joachim had always seemed, at least in his own mind, opaic. Even in this life, the heart of darkness, as Mr. Spitzer sighingly remarked, reaching for, reaching for his black-bordered handkerchief. Perone's mother of pearl cufflinks gleamed in the darkness as Mr. Spitzer's hands moved, and his face was blotted out by darkness. Should now their situations be reversed, now when Perone was no more, now when only the solitary mourner endured, talking to a dead lady, mourning also for himself in his oblivion, which should find no resting place? For he should walk the earth, and he should knock upon all doors, all ivory doors. He should stare through every window. He should stand upon every street corner, tapping the pavements with his ivory-headed cane, waiting for a man he knew was dead, waiting for a dead coachman. He should peer into every stranger's face, searching with his blank, chalk-colored eyes. He was a welcoming committee of one, sometimes he said, with a slight watery smile playing upon, across his ordinarily passive features though perhaps this was an illusion caused by a candle sputtering flame and a sudden gust of wind. But Perone, bright Perone, slept, and the autumn leaves falling did not disturb his sublunar peace, and he did not hear the sound of the sobbing, whirling, rust-colored rain, the color of blood, not even the heavens splitting wide apart or shattering into fragments. And he did not hear the heavy footsteps of the mourner in the faded grass, where was the dead song sparrow, his glassy eyes staring at a glassy sky, where were spiders shimmering webs like shrouds and dead velvet cocoons had fallen, withered flowers white as snow and empty earthen, earthen urns, empty as disappointed virgins. He had furthermore no servant problem, no need of a short-order cook or a valet or an odd jobs man or an inverted beachcomber or a surf fisherman dragging his silver nets, did not have to make out his income tax reports, not even in a dream, or make out a dead lady's tax reports, or study the fluctuations on last year's stock exchange, the mercurial risings, fallings, figure the present value of frozen Russian imperials or light bills for mandarins, had solved all his problems or left them to Mr. Spitzer to solve. Cannot imagine what Mr. Spitzer's present problems were, just as to the ordinary business of getting through this life, keeping body and soul together, body and soul and clothing. 
Then they'll have to get up every morning at the crack of dawn to eat breakfast or dress themselves, as Mr. Spitzer did, in the same sad clothing of perpetual resurrection, that clothing which would almost seem to have a life, a spirit of its own. And though his clothing smelled like tallow, like wet leaves, like something burned, like something long buried in a grave, though he would think of wearing something else, of having a disguise, he would be afraid to wear any other clothing, for fear he should put on a different body and lead an altogether different life. For what if he should put on a different jacket, a hound's tooth tweed, perhaps too tight around the waist, a bright red bow tie, a red rose, a bowler derby, and forget his briefcase, or carry a bright cane? Would he then be a different man, his brother, walking down a different street, or going to a shadowy horse race where the horses' heads were foam, pounding upon another shore like the shores of forgotten consciousness, unbelievably iridescent? Perhaps, indeed, old Joachim had always envied him, and always would, as a matter of habit which should continue when there was no longer any impulse or motive or reason, simply because he had always done so. For he had always been a victim of certain compulsive habits, such as his frequently stopping to look around him when he already knew his of the way. He had envied him his life of which he had not approved, his death which had been so very much like his own partial death, and yet successful. Whereas, though Mr. Spitzer had moved in that direction, old Joachim had always failed, being quickly exhausted, returning upon himself, where the snow whirled, where the wind turned black with grief. Perrault's life had contained, unlike old Joachim's, which had been quite colorless, so many colors, more colors in the glass prism, the transparent body with its colors formed by the refractions of moving light, that body whose ends Mr. Spitzer believed were similar, equal, and parallel polygons, polygons whose faces were parallelograms, each turned to a vertical axis in distinction from dome. Perrault had been volatile, many-sided, his life so brilliant that it seemed something which could never exhaust itself, so long as there had been an outer world, a world of light, he mirroring the wind, and yet how quickly he had gone, leaving old Joachim here, leaving Mr. Spitzer in the shadow of a coming event, or one which had already occurred, though life was surely uncertain, as Joachim had experienced it, like something taking place after he was already dead, after his limbs had turned to ivory, after his mind had frozen into separate and congealed parts, after the rose had withered in his hand, after the white piano keys were broken, after the many clocks had stopped, the life was shifting and constant. A feeble flame moving across a darkening sky, appearing different from different points of view, moving through most opaque clouds of darkness into whirlwind. Yet there was an unknown limitation, a kind of changelessness, even in the unknown heart of life, perhaps caused, you would suppose, by his feelings of inertia or indifference. So nearly like mortal fatigue that he would sometimes wonder if he had not already passed beyond this pale horizon and these limits, if it was really in if he was really in ease, flesh and blood and actual existence. It would seem to him, though it was this thought which made him stagger, and this which made him breathless, that he was essentially inessential, having no essence or being, at least not of his own. Had he not always lamented that it was he who had died so suddenly, he had not known what had happened. For death was the heart of life, but was life, by extension, the heart of death, he asked. Though given to these exaggerated per peregrinations, though encompassing this great circumference so great it would seem to be ringed by a starry belt or dim torches of watchmen, he had never found out. He had never found out upon which side of a boundary line he was. And though his might be to some degree the problems of every other man and woman, Yet his problems were made more intense, complicated by the fact that he had been literally this double, this twin for whom life was a necessary duplicity, that there were these two images like death and love united in the womb of time, 
perhaps there, were, there ever would be, even when there was no memory or when there was only a flame which had faded. 